Uh, if you are new to Element, we just like to let you know up front that uh, these are decorations. It normally doesn't look like this. We think they're awesome decorations because what they're supposed to represent is like you're in a tent. And so we come, we're in Genesis. We're in a new section that's dealing about relationship and covenant. That's what it's supposed to feel like. And so new people are always like, this is interesting. And, and it is. I think it's great, personally, because it really gives you the feel of like a Middle Eastern tent. Well, if you had a lot of money anyway, because it's big. You, and I've got to tell you, I, Christy's doing announcements over here. I know it took her half an hour to get through them, but you guys are a dead crowd. I'm like, she's trying to crack little jokes. You guys are like, you have a good fourth? I mean, it's like, seriously, people. It's hard to get up here sometimes when you guys are zombies brains whatever all right so i'm going to element if you are new there are bibles in the back if you don't own one you can have one if you forgot one you can use one there are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room if you have a smartphone you download an app it's called uversion you click on live and uversion it will bring us up by gps in your smartphone and you will get all the sermon notes and the verses and all the stuff that goes along with it anybody get totally messed up with the fourth and right in the middle of the week so, yeah, I seriously thought like the next day was like Sunday, the next day is Sunday, the next day, I don't know what's going on. I'm just, see, now you just give me courtesy laughs because I made fun of you earlier. So uh, This Friday, our uh, Film and Theology starts back up. We are doing Super 8, starts at 6 p.m. if you want to come and watch Super 8, and then we'll talk about the movie afterwards. Youth has concession stands in the back, and they do sell milk duds, and that would be the most important thing that would be in the entire Thing. Also, our gospel class resumes this Wednesday night, 6.30. This week we were talking about God. It's like, don't we always? Yes. But th- this is, even more so, we, we talk about God in this, and so you should come if you missed the first one. And you are not second service. That doesn't apply to you. I told second service, you need to learn how to get up and go to the 8.15 service, because seriously, uh, you think it's hard to find a seat in here. Second service, it, there's like no seats, whatever. People stand in the hallway and just crazy stuff. All right, why don't you guys stand me, reading God's word. This is Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who doesn't give up on your people. And I ask that we'd be those who also learn to live like our great God and that we follow through on the good things you call us to and that we do not give up and that we honor you with all that we do. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, this is Genesis. This is week 23. We only got 50 left. <laughs> you have a Bible open to Genesis 14. That's where we're at today. So far, we have seen creation to the point where sin enters this world through our own doing. We have seen God seek to redeem his creation and his creatures and judge wickedness. Uh, the last few weeks, we've looked at a guy named Abraham. For a few more weeks, we will actually like a few more months, we'll actually look at this guy, Abraham, as well. He is one of the most central figures to religion today. Actually, he's a man who is venerated not only in Christianity, but Judaism and Islam as well. He's a great man of faith in all of those. And we have seen Abraham leave everything behind to follow a God who sought him and called him. We have seen Abraham two weeks ago in fear and almost give his wife away by pimping her out to get some booty. Uh, we have seen him in great faith become a shepherd to his people and a servant to those in need. Today, you get to see him in one of the greatest roles as a warrior who does the right thing simply because it was the right thing. We are calling this, in your notes, Western at High Noon. Just to get you in the mood. Are you in the mood? You'll know. <laughs> okay, now what happens in Genesis 14 is actually unique in many ways. 
fully 11% of the words and verses and phrases in uh, chapter 14 are unique to chapter 14, found nowhere else in the scriptures. And so we've seen so far, Abraham had, had repented of his sin. His faith grows. His, you see, his faith isn't uh, perfect faith, but it's in a perfect and holy God because God is perfect. And Abraham's a lot like us. If we fall down, we should get back up. We follow God. We become stronger. Genesis 14 is the first recorded account of war. I am sure there's been many others, but Genesis selective and i don't know i'm not doing anything (laughs) Uh, it's it's selective in the scriptures to give us a theological purpose so chapter 14 starting in verse 1 we're going to run through this in the days of aramphel king of shinar that's actually babylon and iraq today still a lot of problems there uh aramphel king of shinar ariot king of elisar and i had to look up how to say this it's kadorliomir kadorliomir king of elam and Tidal king of goim i know if you're like in the lord of the rings dungeons and dragons you're like this is the most awesome Sunday ever. You got all the names I love. You're like, where is Gimli, son of Gloin? For there's Lord of the Rings people, by the way. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, Shemember, which sounds like the next awesome powers movie to me, by the way. King of Zeboim, and the king, if you get that great, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Kodorliomir, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. Essentially, these are city-states, and they all have their own little king. Uh, early Jewish commentators see significance in the names of some of these kings. Bera would mean in evil. Bersha meant with wickedness. Shinab meant he who hated his father. Shemeber was the voluptuary, or from, like luxury, or lust, or pleasures, or things like that. In the fourteenth year, Kedorliomir and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephim and the Ashtoreth Karanim. It totally sounds like a movie, I swear. The Zuzum and Ham and Emim and Shava Kirathame and the Horites. I can say that, and that's a bad name right there. In the hill country of Seir, Seir means hairy. I have no idea why I'm telling you that. As far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness, you were like, are you even saying the words right? I can read. I went to public school. I said the words. We're okay. Then they turned back and came to Is. In Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Okay, so you're thoroughly confused. I'm going to set this up for you. You have city-states, you have clans, tribes. They're all ruled by kings. The kings would make alliances with other kings. They would then get together and make war on other people so, they're, so all of their influence would then increase and there are more people underneath them. Nations still kind of do this today. Back in World War II, we had what we called the axis of evil with Germany at kind of at the center of that. Uh, NATO, uh, the UN, they all kind of come together to try and get a little more rule and power in this. What happens here is for 12 years, one king, Kedorliomir, reigns over all the others until some of them start start to rebel against him there is then bloodshed to see who gets to rule this has then the king of sodom the king of gomorrah the king of adma the king of zeboim and the king of bella that is zoar went out and they joined battle in the valley of siddim with kadodomir king of alam title king of goim aramphel king of shinar and ariot king of elisar four kings against five okay so who do you think has the numerical advantage Y'all, Sesame Street, right? One, two, three, four, five, bigger than four. So five kings, four against five. So the five have a numerical advantage. They're also fighting on their home turf. Whenever you watch sports, you have sports scores. They always come back and give the people on their home turf, you know, the better advantage because it's their home turf. Apparently, that doesn't help them too much in this story, though. It's kind of like you when you walk through your house at night. You've lived there for a really long time, and you still kick the couch or that chair in the middle of the floor. You're like, ah! 
your home turf didn't help you much at all. Same thing. So what happens is these four kings, they go out, they fight all the other insurgents, and then they come back to deal with the final five who caused the issue in the first place. Now, the Valley of Siddam was full of butamen pits. And this is good to know because butamen pits are still in the Middle East to this day. These are asphalt pits. We call them tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Now, I've got to tell you, this is one brilliant army because it's their home turf. And what do they do? They fall into their own tar pits. That's stupid. All right? You should know. You live there. There's tar pits. Don't fall. That seems like boot camp 101, right? Don't fall in the tar pit. Is this thing even on? Really? Seriously, people. It's, it's like you can't fight when you're stuck in the tar pit, so don't fall in the tar pit. They fall in the tar pit. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And you're probably thinking, yeah, so why do I even care? Verse 11 is why you care. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, up to this point, Lot in the story has nothing been but a lot of trouble. Lot doesn't worship God. The New Testament, Peter says he's righteous. Uh, we don't know where that happened through Genesis. If he is righteous, he hides it really well the entire time. It's like a lot of us who claim to be Christians. You know, we, we say we believe, but we don't really show it. So Lot was living where from last week? Sodom. Why is he living in Sodom? He chose it, right, exactly. He chose to live there. Given the choice by Abraham, he said, I want to go over there. It was a bad choice, but it looked good at the time. I, I will tell you, this is like a lot of our choices. My first DVD player I bought was $750. It looked good at the time, all right? My first Xbox 360 I bought was 399 bucks, full retail. It looked good at the time. I once bought a PlayStation 3 right when they first came out. I stuck it on eBay, sold it for $700. It looked good to somebody else at the time. And today they're like, oh, sad me. Anybody ever own a Betamax? Yeah, it looked good at the time, right? Six months later, it's like, why did I buy a Betamax? Nicolas Cage, any movie he's in, why? It looks good at the time, apparently, to somebody. So Lot moves into Sodom and Gomorrah because it looks good at the time. He gets corrupted. It affects the sexual ethics of his daughters. It costs him his wife and everything he owns. Huge mistake. So, you know, here you get one of the five kings defeated is the king of Sodom. So Lot gets hauled off in from this war as a possession. And Abraham has to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to insert myself in this situation? So what what does Abraham do? It's a good prop, although the head's kind of jacked up. Okay, he, he is 75 years old. Most 75-year-old guys won't get on a ladder for afraid they're going to fall off. And what does he do? He goes to what? I think he paints his face like William Wallace and goes out to kick some arse. He, you can say that because it's got an E and an R, so it's, it's okay. Sal's camel. Okay, now I showed you last week, Abraham is becoming more of a servant and more of a shepherd to those who looked up to him. Now, also, Lot has been difficult the entire time. And at this point, Abraham isn't condoning Lot's sin. He's simply bringing rescue and relief as our great God does in our lives all the time. You and I, we'd probably leave Lot to rot. That's my rhyme. What, what? Okay, that's my rhyme. We, we, if we had Lot, we'd be done with that guy, typically as we are with difficult people in our lives. I mean, Lot's a tough guy, but many times God puts tough people in the midst of our lives to raise us up. Because you know who is a difficult person? You are. 
you are. This is why Jesus reminds us in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, so you love each other. So we're not always the nicest people to be around, but you love them, and that shows the love of God. One of the greatest witness for the, witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ is how God's children treat each other. Sometimes we do give people too much power over us, and they irritate us, and they pull us away from who God calls us to be. Some people will judge you. Some people make you feel discouraged. Some people will come and dislike you. Some people will reject you. Some people are like a little black hole of need that just sucks the life and drains everything out of you. If you don't know anybody like that, that's probably you. In the relationships, just being honest, that's what out there. Some people are going to anger you and scare you, depress you. We call these family. Can't get rid of them at all. Now, I've told you a couple times about Amy Carmichael. She's a missionary to India in the early 20th century, and she has this great illustration of a glass of sweet water and a glass of dirty, bitter, nasty water. She says, if you, if you bump a glass of sweet water, what comes out of that glass of sweet water? Sweet water, right? One plus one is two, right? It's really simple. If you bump a glass of dirty water, what comes out? Dirty water. And so what she says is it's not the bump that filled the glass. It just knocks out what's inside. And you and I will get bumped, we'll get sinned against, life is like that, it's disappointing, people will injure you, and we have a propensity to lash out and say, look at what you made me do, when rather we should be saying, look at who you revealed me to actually be, because that's the honest answer. They didn't change you, you get to see what you really are. This situation reveals who Abraham really is. He's a shepherd, he's a servant, and he's a protector. Because other people aren't going to create your spirit. They're going to reveal that. Abraham is revealed to be a rescuer. Lot, on the other hand, is who he always has been, just a pain in the backside. And so God grows us this way a lot, (laughs) with lots. If you need to develop love somewhere, God is literally going to send some lot into your life. And you're going to have to learn how to deal with this person. They're going to be your greatest challenge. You're going to have to learn how to love through that person. If you've got to develop hope, God's going to send some person like Lot into your life. And you're going to have to go through all of these depressing things with them because God wants to make your hope strong. If you want to grow in your ability to confront somebody, God's going to send a lot into your life that you get to confront all the time. It's how he grows us. It's like lifting weights. They strengthen your muscles and cardio exercises strengthen your heart. Difficult people strengthen your ability to love. In Proverbs 27, 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That doesn't mean, oh, look, they're so nice and how they're sharpening me. Many times, it's a lot who's coming up against you and learning so you can be sharpened. And you may ask, you know, God, why do you allow all these jacked up people in my life? Honestly, what other kind of people are there? We're all like that, right? I mean, if God were to get rid of all the difficult people in the world, everybody with quirks and flaws and ugliness and sin, we'd all be gone. We'd all be dead. I mean, nobody left. It'd be an empty planet. See, all through the scriptures, people always have difficult people to deal with. And we always look at one side and say, oh, well, well, these people were okay. It's the other people who are bad. Like, you take, like, Moses and Pharaoh, right? Oh, Pharaoh's a terrible guy. He oppressed all the Israelites. Well, you look at Moses. Moses goes out and murders somebody and can't even bury the person that well because they see the toes sticking out or something. They find the guy that, that he killed. And next thing you know, what does Moses do? He runs away for 40 years and tries to hide. And then when God shows up, oh, go, go back and talk to Pharaoh. He's like, I don't want to. I don't speak so good. And he's like, okay, well, take your brother then. Just go. I mean, Moses is difficult too. You go to like, last year we had Esther and Haman. We looked at the story of Esther. And so you have Haman wants to get rid of all the Jews. And, you know, and we think, oh, Esther, how wonderful. No, Esther was a pain as well. She's, she's like, I'm a beauty queen. I don't want to say anything. I might get hurt. I'm not going to do anything. And it's like, takes another guy going, you need to step up and do what God's calling you to do. You get King David and King Saul. Like, oh, King Saul, you know, he consulted the witches. He's a terrible guy. I wanted to kill David. But what did David do? He becomes king, commits adultery, kills 
kills the woman's husband in the midst of it. Seriously, that's a difficult guy too. So you got John the Baptist and King Herod. Oh, King Herod, what an evil guy. What about John the Baptist? He's a guy that's raised on bugs and sugar. You tell me he's not just a little jacked up. Yeah, here comes John the Baptist. What's he doing? Big old belt and camel hair. Captain Caveman, that's John the Baptist right there. You get Abraham and Lot. Oh, Lot's such a terrible guy. Look at Abraham two weeks ago. Takes this whole entourage down to Egypt, pimps out his wife for some goods, and sins and he sins and he sins. Abraham is not an easy guy either. You get to the New Testament, you got Jesus. You know, and, and Jesus is probably the best person who ever lived. Okay, And yet the religious leaders had a problem with him. They shouldn't have, but, but they did. And Jesus had Judas. And now today Jesus has all of us. All of us. And we're all, we all have issues. And if God loves you and he does love you, and if God wants to shape you into something new and he does want to shape you into something new, he's going to send difficult people into your life to do it. But I will tell you, here's good news for you. You can take heart because you are the difficult person he's sending someone else's way to. You are. So how do you do this? How do you stop from imploding when these things happen? Number one, you keep Jesus as the center. Jesus must be center. We humble ourselves before him. You will never be able to touch the deepest part of another person's soul. Arguments don't win people over or change people's lives. Jesus does that. And so you go to him in prayer. Prayer is the closest you will ever come to touching another person's soul. Between you and another person's always stands Jesus. So the best way to affect another person is by talking to... Yes, for the ten of you. Yes, Jesus, you got it after all that. Second thing is you make a choice to love like God loves. You love like God loves. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. There's, I told you this before. There's been lots of studies that have been done about what make us like someone else. And they filter through physical attractiveness, IQ, ability, personality type. And they come down to the number one thing that might, makes us like somebody else. You know what that is? If they like you. That's why we like somebody else. If they don't like you, you don't like them. If they like you, you like them. Be kind of like, oh, that Ghani doesn't like me. I always thought that guy was shallow, that <laughs> guy. But see, God's not like that. God loves people who love him. He loves people who don't love him. He doesn't do it because he has to. It's a choice, and he chooses to make that choice. And this is how all of his creation was supposed to function within the love and the grace of God. And see, when Jesus comes, no one deals with difficult people as well as he does. I mean, he has lots of practice. The Romans want to silence him. Herod wants to kill him. Pilate washes his hands of him. Religious leaders, they, want to, they envy him. His family thinks he's crazy. His townspeople want to kill him and stone him. Judas betrays him. Soldiers beat him. The crowd shout for his crucifixion. His own disciples run out on him. And Jesus never once prays that God removes all these difficult people from his life. Because if he did, again, there'd be nobody left. And sometimes we think, oh, God, you know, just remove this person, the situation from me. You know, and if God ever answered that prayer the way we actually want to, we would lose the opportunity for growth that God intends in our lives. And God intends for us to grow. You get to Lot. Lot's biggest deal is he's always trying to use Abraham. He uses him for wealth, uses him for money, uses him for land. And I love that Jesus speaks about this as well. In Matthew 5, 41, he says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The background on this is Roman soldiers were allowed to force Jews to carry a burden for them for one mile. For us, this would be the person who wants to use you. They don't see you as a person. You're just a tool for them. And so what do you do in that situation? Jesus invites you to see your enemy as a human being. 
a Roman soldier. He's usually a young boy. He's a stranger in a strange land. He's probably very poor himself. All, he's re- all he gets from people is local hostility. That's all he receives. And so he says, here's an idea. You finish a mile. You look at him in the eye, and you say, you look tired. Let me give you a little more help. I will go with you another mile. That would blow the soldier's mind because nobody does that. Nobody. He'd be like you sending in a tip to the IRS. <laughs> Don't do that because... They can't handle their money as it is, but that's kind of what it's like. When we often sometimes see someone as being difficult, what we do is we think of them as, oh, they're just deliberately unlikable. That's, that's what they're like. When they're a real person with a real story who's broken just like the rest of us. And so Jesus calls us to remember that the person is a human being. So we take time to think about how they feel, how they were treated. We ask if we could help them become the person God wants them to be. Again, John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another that's how it works in the ancient world rabbis had this saying they said full repentance is shown when a person is subjected to the same situation in which he had sinned which he had fallen once before only this time he does not sin so if you have somebody who's very difficult in your life and you go up and you and you deal with them one way and you just oh and you just come and glue it on him but then the next time you deal with him i got him really sorry the next time you deal with them with grace and dignity that is true repentance because we've actually changed it's not just saying oh god i'm sorry it's changing what we do you see this in Abraham. You know, two weeks ago when we looked at Abraham's life, he's scared to death, hides behind his wife in Egypt. And now what happens is Lot gets taken off and Abraham's going to go and try and rescue him. He steps into a place. He stops living as a coward. He changes. Even if Lot was never going to change, he still steps in to try and help him. And this is the point that God has made you and I to be his ambassador, his child, his representative, all through the power of Christ. That's what we're supposed to be. And so we're supposed to be like Abraham became, somebody who stands up for the righteousness of who God is everywhere that we go. Let's get, I'm never going to finish this if I don't get going. So Abraham finds out about Lot, chapter 14, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first usage of Hebrew in the scriptures. It means alien, stranger, outsider. I think God's people have always been that way. The New Testament says we should have the gift of hospitality. Hospitality means welcoming of a stranger, people who don't know God in order to introduce them to God and be friends with us and him. Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. So Abraham's still living in the same place. We don't know how long it's been since we saw him in the last chapter, but apparently he is still living in the same place, still preaching the exact same gospel. And we know this because it says Abram the Hebrew. Ancient Jewish commentary in, in Genesis Rabbah 42.13 says there's a homiletical connection in the root of this word that connects Abraham's refusal to conform to any religious structure of the day. Essentially, it means that all the world was on one side and that Abraham was on the other. Not in the term of trying to be difficult or, or angry, always trying to fight with everybody else, but in the terms of he refused to conform to the religious worship of all these false gods. In the midst of all that, he stayed true to the one true God. And it says, and these were allies of, a- these were allies of Abram. And this could also mean that, that they were bound by treaty. I think they're actually friends. So what happens is, I love this about Abraham. That he has guys around him because he lives his life a certain way. They're not believers, probably his neighbors. And these guys are actually going to go right off into war with Abraham. It shows that Abraham is a good man. He's a kind man to his neighbors. So when he goes to war, guys who don't follow his God will actually risk their lives for him. He goes to war with guys who follow his leadership but not his God. And honestly, sometimes I think that's kind of true. Sometimes the the best guys for a job are not the Christians. 
You know, you, you want a mechanic or a plumber who can get the job done. Sometimes some guy will show up with the Jesus fish on his card, and that means I'm going to rip you off in Jesus' name because they're just like Lot. You need someone who's good and can actually get the job done. If you can find a believer to do it, that's good, great. Use a believer. Awesome, wonderful. But don't settle just because someone claims that they're a believer. You need to get someone who gets the job done. So Abraham is like this. He's like, I got to go to war. I'm going to take my redneck buddies. That's who I'm going to war with. They already got guns and camels. They're set and ready to go. They kill for sport. They, they drive around in Chevys. Actually, probably Dodges because they're not believers. So he said. He, so he says. He says. I said we're going to fight, and they said, "Let's go." Verse 14, when Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 318 men born in his own house. These are soldiers. He's doing pretty good now for a homeless guy in a tent. He is. It's cool to have your own army. You ever watch those Capital One's commercials? What's in your wallet? And they're all like those guys. That's these guys. You go to Costco. I need a parking spot, right? They got a car there. 318 guys. Boom. Move the car out of the way. You just park right there. It'd be awesome. To have 318 guys. So he's got 318 guys plus whatever his redneck neighbors brought with them. And they ride 100 miles. 100 miles. Most 75-year-old guys would die at 100 miles on a camel. Abraham's fired up, shows up. He's ready to fight and go to war. So when he gets there, the first thing he does is he makes a plan. It's important to make a plan. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. God is never against making plans. It's not just trust the Lord. God gives us plans. We make plans. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night. Great plan at night. Trust the Lord and sneak him and kill him when it's dark. That's... That's a good plan. Now, some people say, well, I don't like war and fighting. I think it's terrible. It is. We should always be about peace as best as we can. But sometimes I believe that war is not only justified, it is required for holiness. In this case, you have a bunch of people who have been taken captive in war. You've got a lot of young women. And what's going to happen to those young women? Right, they're going to be raped and brutalized. And so sometimes the only way to liberate people who have been harmed is to fight their captors. In, in the Exodus, in Pharaoh, God comes and does this. Joshua judges. It's done over and over again. You see, Abraham is not a bloodthirsty man. He simply does what needs to be done. And not all wars are justified, but sometimes it needs to happen as it did on this occasion. And so Abraham gets them at night. After they're tired, they follow their other battles. So they show up all fresh and ready to go. And their little smaller force routes these guys. So it goes against them at night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. That is another hundred miles a hundred if you're a hundred miles away and they're still riding behind you whooping you you got your butt whooped okay that that's 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 a whooping right there verse 16 then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people lot people women children possessions everything is liberated I'll deal with all those ramifications of this next week because you see some interesting things happen. But I want to pull this together for you. Uh, I'm reading through a bunch of Jewish commentaries about how they saw this event that, that Abraham went and did. And they all kept using the, the same two words. These words are pidyon shavayim. And what it means is redeeming those taken captives or setting captives free by ransom. Now, if you're a Christian, does that sound vaguely familiar to you? Exactly. They relate this entire story in terms that we would understand that our God has come and saved us. 
and we look at the story, we start to think, you know, who, who do I identify with in, in the story? And so, like, well, I was like Abraham. I'd go and I'd fight, or I'm like Darlie O'Meara, and I want everybody else underneath me, or I'm like the guy that ran from the fight and went and found Abraham to get some help. You know who we're supposed to see ourselves in this story as? Lot. We are Lot. We are difficult not only to each other but also to God. We are ungrateful for what he gives us. We think it's never enough and we always want more. We expect our own definition and not God's definition of blessing for our lives. And so we look out in our own little world and choose what we think looks best for ourselves. And it usually ends up being sin. We shackle with other people. We watch things we shouldn't watch. We eat things we shouldn't eat. We spend our money on things and it all goes away. We have nothing left to give to God. And then all of a sudden we notice how we're enslaved to all the things in our lives. We have nothing left everything falls apart and we say god why'd you do this to me right exactly it's it's totally laughable it's completely laughable because we do this all the time see the reason we are like lot is that we need a ransom to be paid for us because we have sold ourselves into sin and we've been alienated from our holy god and so jesus comes to us in our captivity to satan sin and death he gives his life as a ransom for us and all these things that held us down had to give up their claim upon our lives and we are set free and the result is that we can be adopted into God's family. In Galatians 4, 4, and 5, Paul puts it like this. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive re- adoption as sons. In other words, the redemption or the ransom frees us to be part of God's family. We had run away. We had sold ourselves into slavery. But God pays a ransom and redeems us out of slavery to bring us back into the Father's house. John Piper wrote that there are six reasons for Jesus coming. Number one, he says, is to ransom many. Number two, to call sinners. Three, to give sight to the morally blind. Four, to divide households. Five, to save from divine condemnation. And six, to give eternal life. Ransom and eternal life, just like Lot. Because we are a lot of trouble as well. And even though we are a lot of trouble, our God is good, and he has ridden into our mess to save us. Did you ever go to a movie and you see like a sound like that and a little piece of paper floats by? They even did it in The Matrix, right? And the little piece of paper goes by ready for the thing. Whenever you hear that sound, you know, that whole high noon western thing, you should think about our great God who came and rescued and redeemed us. Because it is an awesome thing that he did. He didn't leave us just where we were. He rescued us. And he calls you and I now to be a people who thank him for that and live lives that reflect that and show that. Usually at the end of a message, I bring you guys to communion and I kind of bring you down on a downer. Oh, think about how terrible you are. You are terrible. Okay, God had to come and rescue us. But this, this is a gracious and wonderful thing. And so this morning, when you take communion and you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us and you dip in the wine of the grape juice, your mind is his blood that was shed for you and I, you remember that our God has ridden into the midst of our mess. And he has redeemed us and broken our chains and set us free and called us out because our God rescued us. And it is a wonderful thing. And that rescue is never meant to just be kept to ourselves. It's meant to be going and shown to everyone around us so everybody knows that our God is ridden in the midst of this. Next time you're in a movie and that something like that comes on, turn to the person next to you and go, oh, just like a bim, bim, bim. You know, and just be like, what? And be like, let me tell you. I'm like, I watched a movie. No. You know, get all excited about it. This should really make you excited that our God, I mean, hopped on his horse and came and rescued and redeemed and saved his people. It is glorious. The band's going to come up. Maybe a couple songs. And as they do, we're going to invite you guys to take communion. We're also, uh, in, in this, this, we're going to sing this first song. It's called Mighty to Save. There's no...
none of that in there. But that's the whole idea that our God is mighty to save. He has rescued. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, it would be deacons and elders in the back. And if you are in a place in your life where, where you feel like you're captive to all the things of your life, they'd love to pray with you, introduce you to Jesus Christ, and show you how he has set you free as well. Uh, we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is in part of our worship, so we give you the opportunity every single week. And there is food and stuff. My wife made cookies last night, and I didn't eat any of them. If they don't eat them, I will take them home and then eat them. So just warn your friend. So there's some food and stuff in the back. Grab some to eat. Meet some other people. Because, again, this rescue, this rescue isn't for one person. This rescue is for the human race. And so our God comes in. So we, together, as a people, worship him corporately by getting together with other people, talking about this great rescue and redemption, because he is so good. And so we, in turn, should be people who are good to those around us, because our God has rescued us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us and teach us how to live as people who honor you by understanding our own rescue, by understanding our own redemption, and in turn living lives that show what that's supposed to look like by the people we come into contact with. That when we run into difficult people that makes us just want to shut them off and run them out of our lives, that we would stop and we would do what you call us to do. Confront maybe where we need to confront love where we need to love, offer hope where we need to offer hope. Always turning people to you, raising you up, lifting you high, honoring you in everything. And I ask that you would remind us anytime we hear some of this high noon Western music that we would just melt with gratitude that you as our great God sought us, loved us, redeemed us, brought us home because you are mighty to save. We can never save ourselves. But you in grace came to save us. Teach us to live lives that reflect that great grace and to honor you with all we are and all that we do. Amen.